Please open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text this morning's note on the back of the bulletin. And while you turn there, I'll just remind you of where we've been and where we're going. Over the last year, we've been studying concurrently through the book of James and Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, longest chapter in the Bible. And so we've done a paragraph or so in James and then done a strophe or a, a, a stanza or two in Psalm 119. If you'll recall, Psalm 119 is an extended acrostic. In the Hebrew alphabet, each verse of each eight-verse chunk begins with the same letter. The, the equivalent in English would be eight verses starting with A and then B and then C, suggesting that, that God intended us to memorize this. It, it's to help in memorization. Um, And so we wanted to take our time going through Psalm 119 and also um, knew that if we did 22, 23 weeks straight through it, that might be a little overwhelming. So we've been going back and forth. We're nearing the end of both studies. After this morning, there are two more stanzas in Psalm 119, and then we have the rest of James chapter 5 to finish. My plan right now, God willing, is when we complete that study, probably sometime in March, to uh, take a few weeks and go through the book of Habakkuk. It's the plan right now, and then, in short order, to dive into the Gospel of John. That's, I mean, plans may change, as we learned last week, um, but that's the plan as it is right now. So Psalm 119, verses 153 to 160, the Resh uh, stanza, and I'd like to begin by reading our text in full and then having a word of prayer. Psalm 119, verses 153 to 159. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Lord God, give us the grace to learn from these verses how to come to you in our time of need in our affliction, how to pray, how to separate ourselves from the faithless, how to cast our burdens, our cares, our concerns upon you. Well up within us, a love of your word. Teach us your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. This stanza, I believe, breaks neatly into three sections. There are Two features that are unique to all three of them. The first is the repeated refrain of give me life, the the title for this morning's message. Uh, That prayer request comes in verses 53 and 54. It comes again in verse 156, and it comes in 159. The other theme that I'm directing the the outline around is this notion of looking. Um, Verse 153 begins, look at my affliction. 
In verse 158, the psalmist is looking. I look at the faithless. And what the ESV translates in 159, consider is the same Hebrew word. Look how I love your precepts. So we're going to frame this request for life around three looks. Three looks. Let's dive in with the first, verses 153 to 154. Look upon my affliction. Now, the psalmist throughout Psalm 119 has been alternating between talking to the Lord about his word and talking to the Lord about his suffering and his enemies. Um, and, and again, that same pattern is continuing here. He is feeling great pressure and threats from without. We've suggested, I've suggested that Psalm 119 is likely written outside of the land. Um, Something like the Babylonian captivity, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's court makes sense. I mean, look at how 161 begins. Next, not next week's text, but our next stanza. Princes persecute me without cause. Um, So we can't be certain who the author is. But it's likely... This is written outside of the land, and he's dealing with threats. I mean, the, the slander, the gossip, which can, in the right situation, be life-threatening. Daniel is thrown in the lion's den, after all, precisely because his accusers were slandering him, were speaking maliciously of him to the king. And so he is in great affliction. He's been dealing with this throughout the psalm. But what he does here in the first Section is he just throws out a, a, a pepper spray, a, a just a series of requests and pleads to go, pleadings to the Lord, and each one of them reveals a different aspect of God's character. This is it's marvelous how informed his requests are. You see them first: look at my affliction, then deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause, redeem me, give me life. Each one of these requests is rich. In its, in its significance and meaning. And one of the things we get from this is the psalmist is both aware of his need, but he's also aware of the one to whom he's pleading. He's aware of the character of the God to whom he addresses. That's one of the key factors we learn in this psalm is speaking to God as who he is, who he has revealed himself to be, responding. God says, let me tell you what I am like and who I am and faithful prayer responds, believing that and speaking to God as the one who has revealed himself as he is. So first we see God as caregiver. God as caregiver. Not someone distant and removed, but someone who sees and cares. That's the implication of look at my affliction. The, the entire story of the Exodus. T- turn to Exodus chapter 2. Um, right at the end of Exodus chapter 2. What, what kicks off The Exodus, why does God act so mightily in freeing his people from Egypt? There's this wonderful setup passage at the end of chapter 2. Because the psalmist is saying more than just look. Look with compassion. Look with concern and care. Exodus 2, 23 and 24. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And that is meant to explain to us why he is about to act in such an amazing, gracious, and powerful way. Because when God sees and hears, and that, of course, in one sense, he always knows. 
but it's before his mind he's considering it. He responds savingly. That's, that's the rationale here. In, implicitly, the psalmist is saying, I know who you are. I know you care for your people, so look upon my affliction and act the way you act when you behold the suffering of your people. God is caregiver. Look on my affliction. Next, deliver me. And here, God as Savior. I need deliverance. I need rescue. And you are a deliverer. You are a rescuer. That's, that's the rationale here as well. He knows God cares for his people, and he pleads them along those lines. And he knows God delivers his people. Um, this is similar to, to 119, 160. One, I'm sorry, 61. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. He's, he's trapped and he's in trouble. And he's not trusting in his own plans. He's not trusting in his own machinations. He's calling, I, I, need, I need saving. I need delivering. And of course, he knows that is the character of his God. And he tacks on a reason. Part of what we're seeing in this section and in the previous section is God has a very different relationship to his covenant people than he does to everyone else. God has a very different relationship to his covenant people than he does to everyone else. We've seen, look, look from last, not last week, but last week for me, uh, last time we were here, look at what he talks about what is near and what is far. What is near and what is far. Verse 115 and 151. They draw near, persecute me with evil purpose. You, they are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord. Well, that near and far is going to be continued here. God is near to the psalmist. He's far from the wicked. We're going to see in just a few moments that salvation in 155 is far from the wicked. And so he's asking for God to respond to him, not as he does to the, to the wicked and the faithless, but as he does to his people. And so he's pointing to those traits and hallmarks that, that identify him as God's people. Now, you become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, but one of the other things we'll see this morning, and we've seen through the psalm, is how you deal with God, how you deal with his word, and how you deal with his son or a package deal. You can't receive one, and reject the other. Jesus made that perfectly clear. If you had believed Moses, you would receive me, he says. So if, you, if you received Moses and what he wrote, you'd receive me. There is no, I like Jesus, but I don't like scripture. Jesus makes that perfectly clear. Heaven and earth will pass away. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So there's a union here between how we respond to the living God how we respond to his word, and how we respond to his son. This is why all religions don't go to the same place. Because you can't say, well, I like God, but I like this other book, this other revelation. And so the psalmist is pointing to his own faithfulness to God's word. I don't forget your law. And the idea of forget is more than just, I can still quote it, but I'm applying it. Like a, like a parent might say to a child, don't, don't forget what I told you. Don't forget that warning. And you mean more than tomorrow if I ask you what I said, could you repeat that back to me? It means keep it in mind. I am living a life, the psalmist is saying, that keeps your word in mind. Therefore, deliver me. Act savingly to me. Because we are seeing verse 55. There are those for whom salvation is far. Why? They don't seek your statutes. So why should the psalmist expect hope that God would save and deliver him because he does not 
forget his law. He does not forget his law. So God is caregiver. God is savior. There's also another implicit argument here we're going to see. The psalmist doesn't forget God's word. He's going to call on God not to forget it either, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So God is caregiver. Look on my affliction. God is savior. Deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Next, this is rich. God as advocate. Or you could write in attorney. Now, Paul, probably most famously, puts the gospel and salvation with the Lord God in legal courtroom terms in the book of Romans. But there's an Old Testament precedent for that. If you remember in our study of, of the book of Zechariah, turn to Zechariah, which if you're not sure what that is, start in Matthew and go a couple pages to the left. Um, well, Malachi is short, or if you're Italian, Malachi, but okay, that was a joke. But Zechariah chapter... Um, Three, I believe. What do my notes say here? Yes, Zechariah 3. This, this is a rich, rich picture. R.C. Sproul has a children's book on this text called The Priest with Dirty Clothes. I recommend it to you. Um, this is a wonderful picture. It's not just Paul who puts salvation in those categories, those pictures. And, and there's more than one picture and way of describing salvation with God. But the courtroom imagery is a rich one. Because what the psalmist, if you're there, we'll look at just a second. What the psalmist is saying is, I am in legal trouble, and I need an advocate. I need an attorney. I need someone to represent me in court. Um, I, I can't represent myself. So Zechariah chapter 3, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now the context here is a remnant's return from Babylon. And Joshua is the high priest, and the, the question is, can he priest? Is he qualified? He's, he's, he's not coming to the temple clean, as it were. Has he not been contaminated by his time in Babylon? Can this man serve before the Lord? Can temple worship be reinstituted? He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right to accuse him. So here's our courtroom scene. The prosecuting attorney, Satan. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And Joshua is standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to him, said to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I'll clothe you with pure vestments. So here's a courtroom picture. And who does the defense attorney's role? God himself. God himself intercedes and silences the prosecutor. Or t- We don't need to turn there. Let me read Micah 7, 8 through 10. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? 
So the picture is his enemies are making accusations against him. And our temptation when that happens is to defend ourselves. And he wants the Lord God to plead his cause. He wants the Lord God to vindicate him. He wants the Lord God to plead for him. And of course, all of this sets up the ultimate act of pleading. Turn to, turn to 1 John chapter 2. I, I know we're taking some time, but it's, it's, it's wonderfully rich. And I want you to see that New Testament theology or what we would think of as New Testament theology, comes right out of Old Testament theology. These are themes that go right across Scripture. 1 John 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The psalmist here, I need need you to look and care. I need you to deliver me, and I need you to plead my cause. I can't plead my cause. I can't defend myself. Back in Psalm 119, if you look at verse 176, as much as the psalmist may be innocent in the particular case of what his accusers are saying about him, he's not claiming sinlessness. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. This man is sinful. He's compromised. He needs God to plead his cause. He needs God to represent him in court. And of course, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that is what we have. One who stood on our behalf, and one who even now intercedes for us before the very throne of God. So God is caregiver, God is savior, God is advocate. Next, God as kinsman redeemer. Redeem me. And of course, there's a rich Old Testament history of this. If, if you fell into financial difficulty... A man died and left his wife a widow. A near family relative could be a redeemer. This is what the book of Ruth is about. But Ruth finding a kinsman redeemer for herself. And here, the psalmist calls on the Lord God to redeem him, to be that close family member who steps in, pays a debt, provides security and safety. In Ruth 2.20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law after she came back and had found favor with Boaz, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living of the dead. Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of yours, one of our redeemers. So notice both how the psalmist is aware of what he needs, but he's also aware of the character of God. Be who you are to me. Be who you've revealed yourself to me. This is how we pray. I know you care for your children in suffering. I know you're compassionate, so look on my suffering. I know you're a savior and a deliverer. You delivered your people from Egypt. Deliver me. I know you plead the cause of your people. I look to the cross and I see that plainly. Plead my cause now and redeem me. Finally, God is life giver. God as life giver. Give me life according to your promise. Now this request, give me life, I believe it shows up 12 times in Psalm 119. 
And if you add in the additional, slightly altered, revive me, same concept, according to your words, something like 20 times in the song. And here, the other requests are going to drop away, and this request is going to be repeated. I, I think the idea of give me life is sort of summing together everything he's asked. I am in danger. I am weak. I am surrounded by enemies. Give me life. Look to my affliction with compassion. Deliver me. Plead my cause. Redeem me. Give me life. I I think we're coming together. That's why this gets repeated. It's summing up everything he said before. And so when he says it again in 156, and when he says it again in 159, I think it's got all the import of all these requests as well. I think it speaks both to, to life as continued existence and life as to quality of life. A life where God is fighting for you. A life where God is acting on your behalf. A life where God is defending you, strengthening you, invigorating you. Well, that, that's, the, that's the opening section. It's just these, these requests. Now notice, each time he says, give me life, he puts on some modifier according to, in accordance with, in keeping with. And this gets back to the notion of reasoning with God. There's a reason why you should give me life. Do it in accordance with to your promise. And here, the tie into what he said earlier makes sense. I don't forget your law. And he's not suggesting God might forget his law, but the implication is you do the same. I have kept your word in my mind, and I, it has informed my actions. Lord, give me life in keeping with your promise and your word. Act accordingly. That's, that's the rationale. Give me life according to your promise. And what promise does he have in mind? There's, there's numerous ones. You think of the passage in Isaiah. Those who wait on the Lord will mount up with eagles' wings. The promises are too numerous. So that, that's the first section. It comes right out of the gate with these prayer requests, indicating his knowledge of his need and his knowledge of the God to whom he comes. You see, it's personal because he's praying in relationship to who God has revealed himself to be. And it would be good for us to follow that pattern as well. Next, point two. I look upon the faithless. I look upon the faithless. It may see a strange place to look, but there's a very large contrast set up here. The covenant child of God is coming to God, pleading covenant promises, demonstrating his covenant faithfulness. I don't forget your law. So give me life according to your word. Let's take a look now at the faithless. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. So let's first consider the Lord's relationship to the wicked. The Lord's relationship to the wicked. And here he declares that salvation is far from the wicked. And I think the idea here is estrangement. They are estranged. Um, The very thing he's asked for, save me, deliver me, is far from them. Salvation is far from the wicked. Verse 150, they are near 
who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. And so here the, the symmetry of the wicked being far from God's law parallels the wicked are far from God's salvation. This gets back to my notion of how you treat the Lord, how you treat his word, how you treat his son are one and the same. Why is salvation far from the wicked? Well, because they're far from his word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Here it says. Um, and, and of course, the, the, this is a package concept. Seeking God's statutes. Being far from God's statutes. Doing God's statutes. They're all, they're all together as one idea. So he'll say they don't remember. They forget elsewhere. They don't keep. Here, they're just far from them. The, the idea is... We come to God's word so we can learn who he is. We can believe his promises and so that we can then respond faithfully in obedience. And the, and the wicked don't do that. They're far from God's word. Consequently, God's salvation is far from them. If you want God's salvation, you're not going to find it far from his word. <laughs> you're not. The Lord's relation to the wicked, salvation is far from the wicked. For they do not seek your statutes. They don't seek your statutes, which again is why he reminds or he points out, I don't forget your law. I'm not like them. I I want your salvation to be near. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. So even as salvation is far from the wicked, he now we look at the Lord's relationship to his people. There's an implicit contrast. It's far distant from the wicked. Great is your mercy. Literally many are your mercies. As the Lord relate with his people, he saves. He saves. We've seen it again and again and again, but this again is coming out of Exodus 34, where the Lord on the Mount Sinai, Moses interceding for the people, show me your glory. The Lord appears before him, tells him his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Great are your mercies, O Lord. And of course, this makes the situation of the wicked that much more tragic. There are great and many mercies, and each and every one of them is far from the wicked. It's far from those who are far from God's word. That's the idea. He saves and he sustains. Give me life according to your rules. This notion of God having many mercies. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3. I just want to show you. I love this passage. 2 Corinthians 1. Sorry, 2 Corinthians 1. Try not to jump around too, too much. But this is, what you say, Dave? This is too good. In a difficult time in my life of, of suffering, uh, I came across this passage and was greatly encouraged by it. Um, there's much to say about the God who is, much to speak of his character, of his relationship. But here's a wonderful way of speaking of him, a wonderful vantage point upon which to look at him. Second Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Back to Psalm 119. Many, many, great is your mercy. Literally, many are your mercies. We're celebrated in the Old Testament. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. Forgives all your iniquity who heals all your disease, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like eagles. See, he looks to the wicked, he sees they are far from God, and then he celebrates what is near God's many mercies. The Lord's relationship to his people. Next, the psalmist's relationship to the wicked. And what we're going to see is the psalmist's relationship to the wicked mirrors God's relationship to them. This is what God calls on us to do is, is loyal, faithful love. And we're to love what he loves, hate what he hates, be close to whom he is close. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. So the psalmist is in danger. The many here... Verse 157 parallels great, same Hebrew word. Many is your mercies, many are your mercies, many are my persecutors. And, and so he's putting both in view. I've got great dangers and I've got great mercies. But it doesn't change the fact that I still have many persecutors and adversaries. He is in great danger. And he remains faithful, his faithfulness. In contrast, again, to the wicked, many of my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. The hallmark of the wicked, they are far from God's word. They do not keep God's word. They have no interest in God's word. The hallmark of God's people. And this isn't a merit system. This isn't like, I read my Bible today, so get me the job. It's, it's a character of life. Their character of life is they rebel at your word. Their character of life is they have their own truth. That's not, I'm, I'm on your team. I'm one of your people. I, I want to know your word. I remember your word. And I do not swerve from your testimonies. So the psalmist's relationship to the wicked, he is in danger by them, but yet he remains faithful. He remains faithful. Which brings us, and finally, to the psalmist's view of the wicked, which here mirrors and models God's own. I look at the faithless with disgust. That's the point here. They're separated, both from God and from him. Then we've got to be careful here. If you take these truths, because, I mean, you want to hear an even stronger statement, Psalm 139, 21 to 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. If you take that... And you don't qualify that. You're going to end up with a self-righteous um, monastery existence where the chosen gather together and look down with contempt, disdain, and disgust on the rest of the world. That's not right. Um, our posture is one similar to God's posture. Think about God. God 
What is his relationship to the unbeliever? What is God's relationship to those who have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? On the one hand, it's, 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 it's merciful and kind and outreaching. He's got an offer of salvation. He's pleading with them to be reconciled. At the other hand, he is fully prepared to judge them. Fully prepared to deal with their sins. Almost like a, a conquering king who surrounded a rebel city fully prepared to destroy it, and yet offering a period of pardon. So, so God himself has this stance with them, where simultaneously his, his mercy is far from them because they're rejecting his word. His kindness is, is, is far from them as they trample on his son, and yet he would have them repent. He would have them come to faith. So the psalmist is declaring, and I think the primary point is, I'm not enticed by them. The highlight of his loathing of them. Not only do I not swerve from your word, I'm not tempted to do so and be like them. The danger for us, if you take the other side and you just focus on, well, Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, is you become friends with the world and then start becoming like the world. And so we need to simultaneously be opposed to how people live in rebellion to God. To, to, to be dismayed by it, to be grieved by it. But that's part of what it means to be loyal to God. How do you feel about those who blaspheme the God you love? It should grieve you. You, sh- you should want nothing to do with that. And yet, we hope that God and his spirit might work, move in their heart, redeem them. They might become beloved sons and daughters. It's a slightly complicated relationship. I'm loving you in the hopes of who you might be. Who might God make you to be? I am interacting with you simultaneously, not approving, not, not delighting and not rejoicing in how you're choosing to live, what you're choosing to serve, who you're choosing to worship, and yet God pleading through me, I minister the love of Christ to you in the hopes of who you might become, who God might change you into. So I think the significance of the statement of his disgust here is... Just as God's saving work, his salvation is far from the wicked. So I'm not enticed by them. I don't want to become like them. There's a real division here. There's a real division here. I look at the faithless with disgust. My affections model your affections. Because this disgust for the wicked is setting up the contrast of his love of God's precepts. We're seeing what the psalmist loves and what he loathes. What he loves and what he loathes. Not only do I not behave like them, I'm not, I'm not secretly enticed by them, fascinated by them. I, I loathe them because they do not keep your commands, which means they're rebels. I and mean, that's, that's the ultimate idea. There's a God in the universe who made all things. And he has, according to Acts, commanded all men everywhere to repent, to trust in Jesus Christ. Those who do not, those who do whatever else they're doing, are doing so as rebels and traitors the living God. And if we are loyal to him, that will have some effect of how we feel about them as well. Not that we're looking down, there but the grace of God go I, but rather here are people who are united in their opposition to, their hostility to, the God who is and is abundant in mercies. And so... It begins by calling on the Lord to look on his affliction. In the second movement, he takes a look at the wicked. I think in part 
to see the distinction, the contrast, the tragedy of how God's salvation is far from them, even as his mercies are many. His remembrance of his own danger and his own union in equally being unified with the Lord and in his view of the wicked. Finally, then, look upon my faithfulness. Look upon my faithfulness. Verses 159 and 160. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So quickly here. First, his affections. His affections. We've just seen what he loathes in verse 158. Now in 159, we see what he loves. I love your precepts. And again, getting back to this package deal, your mind, your heart is going to go to what enthralls you, what you find is beautiful, you find is attractive, which is why it's, it's pointless, it's fruitless to try to keep God's word in your own flesh and strength if you find no interest in it. It has to start with delight, love, pleasure, tasting and seeing that it is good. And then, because this word delights, because this word pleases, because this word tastes wonderful, then you draw near to it, you keep it in your mind, and then you live it out. That's, that's the flow. So again, a package deal, which if you flip it backwards, the, 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 the faithless have no appetite for God's word. They have no remembrance of it. It's far from them. They're pursuing other things. But he, in contrast, loves God's precepts. And he's asking the Lord to consider to look at that. Again, making that contrast real. We're, we're seeing the, the outline of the faithless, the wicked. And we're seeing the outline of what a child of God looks like. Are they sinless? No. Do they love God's word? Yes. And on that basis, give me life according to your steadfast love. So the first two times he asked God to give him life, it was in accordance to what God had said, according to your promise, according to your rules. Here... I love this. So the first few times, you said, those who wait on you, you will lift up. You said, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now he's just asking the Lord to give him life simply because of who you are. You abound in steadfast love. In your steadfast love, give me life. Not just because of what you've said, but also because of who you are. His request, give me life according to your steadfast love. Give me life according to your steadfast love. And then moving on, third, his confidence, his confidence. Now the last verse, verse 160, is I believe just a statement of his delight. He said, I love your word, and now he is declaring the excellency of God's word. Uh, It's one of my favorite verses in the psalm. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And what's not clear in the English is that literally what you have is the beginning. The head of your word is truth. And the Hebrewism there, and you can put your blankers beginning, um, is that it, from, from beginning to end, the start and the finish, and everything in between, uh, is the same Hebrewism is used in Psalm 139, verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them, is the head of them. So from beginning to end, your word is truth. The sum of your word. Any point in it, you turn any page, 
Any verse, the sum of your word is truth. It's truth. And again, highlighting the unity of, of the Old Testament and the New. Um, this is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ said in John seventeen seventeen in his prayer to the Father in the garden. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The beginning of God's word and the end. Beginning and end. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So not only is the quality of your word from beginning to end and everywhere in between true, that true through and through word endures forever. We're starting to see some of the reasons why the psalmist loves and delights in God's word. We have something that is wholly true in every part, and we have something that will last and endure. And again, this echoes what our Lord said, Luke sixteen seventeen. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one daughter of the law to become void. Um, again, the attempts to try to pry Jesus away from Scripture are doomed to failure. There is no more staunch inerrantist than Jesus. And so when I meet people who, I like Jesus, but I'm not such a big fan of Scripture, they're like, well, two things. You can't know anything about Jesus apart from Scripture. Scripture is what mediates the knowledge of Jesus to us. And the Scripture then depicts Jesus as a radical inerrantist. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void, said King Jesus So again, it gets back to how you deal with Jesus, how you deal with God, how you deal with his word are one. They're one. And for the child of God who's looking for God's mercies, for God's help, for God's deliverance, God's compassion, for God's redemption, for God's intercession, it's a package deal as well. There is no love for Jesus without love for his word. Um, We're going to transition now to a time of communion. Communion.